Today's reading is from 1 Timothy chapter 2 to chapter 3, verse 13. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge to the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. And a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but of good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Uh, Evening, everyone. If you're joining us uh, just tonight, uh, we're not in our normal, we're out of our normal practice of just systematically working our way uh, through books of the Bible. We're doing a topical series then in this month of June, thinking about complementary living, how men and women relate, how they relate in church and in different settings. And uh, so this is the second of three. We began last week in uh, Genesis chapters one to three, and uh, this is the second. Um, so they're not, I'm not trying to sort of uh, thoroughly go through the text as we perhaps normal, normally would, but draw some of the uh, relevant principles out and apply them. But this is a difficult word, particularly chapter 2. So let me pray as we turn to it together. Our great God and Father, as we've thought already this evening, how wonderful it is to have a creator who is good, who made all things well, who knows what is best, for each and every one of his creatures that he's made. Father, for us who call ourselves Christians, we are your sons and your daughters. 
And this evening, would you help us as we turn again to the Scriptures to trust you, to believe you, and respond appropriately, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here was uh, one recent headline about um, the horrific shooting that took place. It's too small, sorry. Uh, in uh, Uvalde in Texas, you know, 19 kids and, and two of their teachers killed. It says, to do the right thing, you might have to die. So it's a comment upon what happened. This is an American writer, David French. You can't read it, can you? There's no way. Anyway, let me read you first thing. It's been years since I've seen Americans so united by grief and fury. The grief is for the 19 children, two teachers murdered of Rob's Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. The fury is against the police officers who waited minute after agonizing minute while the killers, excuse me, killer hid behind a locked classroom door. Now, it is curious uh, what's happened there. I mean, going through all the details, of course, you, you know that seven police officers arrived at whatever, about 11.30. Children from inside the school phoned six times within the first hour. Eventually, an hour and 15 minutes after they'd arrived, the police officers went in and, and killed the shooter, during which time, of course, in that hour and 15 minutes, he'd killed all these different children. The article quotes from the Texas Police Training Manual. It has this section in it. First responders to the active shooter scene will usually be required to place themselves in harm's way and display uncommon acts of courage to save the innocent. That's quite something to read in your work handbook, isn't it? And it's not in my work handbook, anything quite so strong. But actually, that, you're, you're an officer in uniform, and that's what we expect of you. An uncommon act of courage to save the innocent. Those police officers, of course, were meant to fight. Perhaps to die, to save the lives of the children. Of course, if they, that officer had died in the course of his duties, that would have been tragic. And he would have been celebrated as a hero, fated, a national hero, no doubt all sorts of posthumous awards. But what the article really highlights, and it's an obvious thing, but it takes courage to fight and defend others when it'll cost you. Uncommon courage sometimes. And in our passage tonight, Paul is in line with the biblical pattern that asks for men to guard and protect and fight and die for God's household. And that's what we're mainly looking at tonight. Now, all Christians are involved in protecting, defending the truth. But from Genesis chapter 2 through to the end of the Scriptures, God in His wisdom has said the primary responsibility for protecting the church of God is given to appropriately qualified men. Now, this is undoubtedly the most controversial of these four evenings that we will look at together. Or maybe not together, if you find it that 
unsettling. But we're thinking for this month then about complementary living, that God made men and women equal and distinctive, equal in value and dignity, but distinctive in a very few responsibilities and roles. Now, why are we doing this? Why do a topical series on this? Well, because we're going to make our minds up about these things, about how men and women should relate to one another. And if we're not shaped and we're not thought through from the Bible, then we will be shaped by the world. And some of that will be good and some of that will be appalling. I think you'd be hard pushed to say at the moment in our culture, people are able to even define what a woman is or define what a man is biologically, let alone in their characters, or there are certain traits that should be demonstrated. So you'd be hard pushed to say we want to turn to take the world's opinion, I think. So but that's the main reason, I guess. But alongside that, actually, um, I don't take this too far, but it is by popular request. This is not a jukebox um, pulpit. Um, but actually enough uh, women in the church, particularly in the evening congregation, said, actually, we'd really like a block of teaching upon what the Bible teaches and how that gets worked out at CCM. So that's why we're doing that now. If you were here last week, we thought um, we can fail in gender relations in two ways, in simple terms. One, we can ignore what God says about the right responsibility that falls upon men to give a lead. Or secondly, we can fail to embrace and encourage the essential ministry of women. Those are broadly the ways that we can fall. And pretty much, well, no. Everyone in this room will tend one way or another on that. Unless Jesus is secretly hiding, no one is going to have it perfectly sorted out. We're all by our backgrounds, by our personal experiences, perhaps church experiences, going to lean one way or another on that issue. We'll tend to either strip men of responsibility or, on the other hand, undervalue the ministry of women. We'll do one or the other. So we turn to 1 Timothy. Now, overall, as a letter, 1 Timothy is dominated by the theme then that God is a savior. That's the main point of 1 Timothy. God is a savior, so the church must conduct itself rightly to hold out that truth of salvation. And there's lots there to stop the false teaching and raise up good teachers. Chapter 2 is uh, undeniably the most disputed part of the letter. But that is only the case for the last 75 years or so. For nigh on 2,000 years of the church, there was, no great dis- there was no dispute, really, on 1 Timothy 2. It's only become a disputable passage in the last 80-odd years. But I think it is a tricky word for us to hear today, particularly when we come to the central section where we spend most time in verses 11 to 15, There are broadly two views held amongst Bible-believing Christians. Either Paul is limiting authoritative teaching, only qualified male elders should carry out authoritative teaching, or he's limiting erroneous teaching. And the problem in Ephesus was at the time there was uh, some women teaching who were just misunderstood. And if you educate them, it will be fine. Those are your two views. 
really. I mean, I mean, we find some freaky, loony things, but basically 99% falls into one of those two camps. I think it's best understood as that Paul is limiting authoritative teaching to duly qualified elders. Now, some would say, of course, on the other hand, um, that uh, it's only erroneous teaching that Paul is wanting to rule out. The, 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 the problem was the women in Ephesus, they'd got it wrong. If you educate them, then they would be fine. So um, the logic goes a bit like this. Probably the best case is Marshall by Andrew Bartlett in a book that came out a few years ago, who argues that all the false teachers in, um, in Ephesus, that's where this letter is written to, all the male ones had already been dealt with. Um, and so that's why he only addresses false teachers who are women. That is a bit odd because he names the male false teachers in the letter, so that's a bit odd. But he says if you look at chapter 5, um, particularly verses 11 and 12, there were young widows um, who, are, who are wanting to marry, and they are the wealthy ones who are sort of dripping in jewels. And um, they're, they're, it's those, these wealthy uh, widows who are, who are manhunters looking for a husbands. They're the false teachers. That's a very small group. Uh, we don't have them today in the church, therefore it doesn't apply. It's sort of the logic of the position. It, it's a, I, I find it hard to follow his position, not at least because the false teaching includes, chapter 4, verse 3, people are forbidden to marry. So how the false teachers are those pursuing husbands when they're saying it's forbidden to marry seems nonsensical to my mind. And I think there's a huge amount of conjecture to land there. But let me, let me just say that is a position that some would hold. But I don't think this is just a word to Ephesus and the church then in the first century, not least of which we'll see because the reasons that Paul argues. So Paul is writing this letter to sort out, there's a bit of a mess clearly in Ephesus, uh, chapter 3, verse 14, 15, he wants to, uh, he's writing these with the instructions so that if he's delayed, the people would know how to conduct themselves in God's household. If the church doesn't conduct itself rightly, it won't be able to hold out the message that God is a saviour. That's the issue. And lots of the, lots of the letter is concerned with the church when it gathers. So you get things such as chapter 4, verse 13, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture to preaching and teaching. So 99% of all commentators would say chapter 2 is about a gathering of the church. That's what we're talking about. I'm going to say four things, uh, the third at some length, the others more briefly. The men should fight for the truth. Verse 8, the women should adorn themselves with good deeds, 9 and 10. The women are to let the elders teach with authority, 11 to 15. And then lastly, the male elders are to be beyond reproach into chapter 3 and 1 to 7. Ready? First then, uh, chapter 2 and verse 8, the men should fight for the truth. Now, in the first seven verses, which uh, Janelle read for us, the point of chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, is that God is a saviour. God is a saviour, verse 4, who wants all people to be saved. And verse 5, he's come as Jesus Christ, the mediator, to give himself as a ransom for all people. God wants people to be saved. So therefore, verse 8, pray. Pray that people come to salvation Chapter 4, 2, excuse me, 2 verse 8, Therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Pause. The men are fighting. Men fight. 
it is an extraordinary set of statistics that in the UK, the prison population is 95% male. In the US, it's 90% male. In Australia, it's 92% male. That 90% figure is pretty consistent across the Western world. Men fight. Men commit violence that lands them in prison. I suppose, biblically, we can't say that men are more sinful than women, but their sins are criminal ones. They tend towards violence. The consistency of those numbers is striking. And the height of them, 90 plus percent, I mean, intriguing. The issue is that since Genesis 3 and the fall, men have fought too often for the wrong things. In God's design, men were meant to fight to protect and to guard. But too often they fight from anger. So we saw this uh, last time. Have we got it, Will? Uh, Genesis 2. Here's the first instruction that the, before Eve is created, of course. Uh, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of work. Two verbs. He's to work it and to guard it. That's what he's to do. And it's striking. I, I've got, go for a long list. But striking, then you work your way through the rest of the Old Testament. And those are the instructions given to those guarding the tabernacle, the temple, God's household. So the male Levitical priests are to guard all the furnishings of the tent and the meeting, fulfilling the obligations of the Israelites by doing the work of the tabernacle. Only you and your sons may guard as priests in connection with everything at the altar. I'm giving you the work. And, and those two come together a few times in protecting the household. So Adam was given the task, you protect the garden, Adam. And then the priests are given the task of protecting the temple, which is a little model of the Garden of Eden. That's what they're meant to do. Men are meant to fight as guardians. Their strength is meant to be to protect others. And so in a church setting, the New Testament would say it's to protect the truth. Actually, in every era of biblical history, you read through the Bible, it is the duly appointed, qualified men who protect God's house, temple, church. That's why elsewhere Paul would instruct Timothy Titus to appoint elders. Acts chapter 2, he tells the elders, your task is to guard and protect the flock. That's the task given to the apostles. You get all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, and the foundations of the city are built upon the names of the 12 apostles. From Genesis 2 to Revelation 21, I mean, we all have a role, but the bottom line responsibility for protecting, guarding God's household, that obligation falls upon the men. So the men are meant to fight only as guardians. Secondly, briefly in this text, the women should adorn themselves with good deeds, uh, verses 9 and 10. There's a contrast here between um, what you ought to wear or adorn yourself with. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but adorned with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Presumably that, that is an issue going on in Ephesus, that um, uh, there's a sort of competition for elaborate 
stuffness taking place. Um, and I guess the timeless principle here is you'd be more concerned with your inward character than your outward appearance, not to be pushed to silly lengths and everyone wears sackcloth. Paul is ruling out elaborate hairstyles, expensive clothes. It's just be more concerned with your character. I mean, years ago, years and years ago, this is near the beginning of the church, and wonder, um, and you can look it up from when they stopped doing these things, but uh, one discipleship group leader had a Prada phone. I mean, it's quite something, a Prada phone. Um, it wasn't very good because they didn't make many phones, um, but it was a bit of bling. Um, and everyone, you know, it was, these were sort of, my phones were still quite early. It was the sort of era where everyone would sit down and plonk them on the table. It was that sort of time. And, and, everyone, and so eventually one of the, uh, Carrie Sandham was on the staff at the time, just said, do you want to have a quick, you know, I know you don't mean it, but people who don't know you, they just know you as the girl with the Prada phone. Um, that's not ideal. He said, oh, I'm so sorry, so sorry. I, you know, I just didn't really engage with that. I just come from a very, 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 very wealthy group of friends and family. Um, and we're all aristocrats, and that's what we do. Uh, and so she downgraded her phone and got a brick like the rest of us. Um, I mean, it's that not drawing attention, I guess. You can resent a verse like, like such as this. You might view it as liberating, because not all can afford expensive clothes. But anyone can pursue good deeds. Now, but, 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 hold on a minute. Men, men do this, women do that. Does, does that mean that women are allowed to get angry and raise their hands? And they're allowed to have fights? And men are allowed to wear bling? Is that the point? No. I think we instinctively know that that would be a silly way of taking this. But as soon as you start down the path of saying, oh, look, there are masculine traits a bit like this, feminine traits a bit like this, men tend to sin a bit more like this, women tend to sin a bit like this, everyone gets very edgy and says, you can't say that. <sighs> look, men on average are taller than women. I think I get away with that one. Okay? In sport, men on average can run faster than women. I think I can get away with that one. But you say, I know a man who's shorter than a woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that. I know that. I'm just saying, on average, men tend to be taller uh, and you know, a little bit faster. Just on average. Not every compared. And there are some male traits that are a bit more like men. Men lean this way a bit more. They're more likely to get into fights. And women are probably a bit more likely to be concerned with outward appearance. But I know a man, I know you do. I know him too. <laughs> and I know a woman, yeah, 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 I know. Um, we, but okay. otherwise you end up saying nothing. Now don't always look to the extremes. Everyone's on some sort of spectrum. We said last week, you know, you can look at something like 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul's quite happy to describe himself as a father and a mother. He can do both, but we can do that. Men should fight for the truth. The women should adore themselves with good deeds. Here's where we spend a bit more time. The women are to let the elders teach with authority. 
verses 11 to 15. Let's slow down a bit. Verse 11. A woman, sh- excuse me, a woman should learn in quietness. Pause. Okay. A woman. Uh, yeah, you can see from the footnote, you could possibly translate that uh, wife. So throughout the passage, you go man, woman, or um, husband, wife. Most of the time, when Paul is talking about husbands and wives, he qualifies that. Um, and so he'll, whenever he's uh, like Ephesians 5 or, or, or Colossians 3, he always uses his own or their own, uh, her own, uh, 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 1 Corinthians 7, a man, his own wife. So you know he's talking about wives and husbands, not just men and women generally. The lack of that qualifier here, pretty much every commentator says it's man and woman here, not husband and wife. A woman should learn in quietness, okay? Not silence. That would make no sense of other things that Paul says. 1 Corinthians 11, women should be praying and prophesying. Quietness is a relational word. We had it read in chapter 2, verse 2, that all Christians should live quiet lives in relation to the government. It's a not cantankerous, not argumentative, is the sense. Peaceable, without disputation, is the sense. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now, it seems to me, uh, Will, there's a balancing going on with the quietness language. A woman should learn in quietness. She must be quiet. Relational term, not silence. And then you've got these two phrases in the middle which interpret one another. So full submission is not permitting a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. I think they interpret one another is how this works. Submission is defined by not teaching or assuming authority. What's teaching? What does that even mean? In these letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, known as the pastorals, written towards the end of um, Paul's life, teaching is um, it's authoritative and public it's, the content is transmission about Christ and the Scriptures. So let me just lead you through a few, not all. So um, uh, here in chapter 4, verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Or uh, chapter 6, verse 2. It's a long verse, but uh, underneath the subheading. These are the things you are to teach and insist upon. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1 at the bottom or the top of the page there, verses 13 and 14. Paul can write, What you heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. I mean, there's many more we could list through, but the teaching has the definite article most of the time in these letters. It is the teaching, as in there's a body. Um, they're the scriptures. And those are to be handled by the elders or overseers. So in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-control, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Chapter 5, verse 17, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. 
So Paul says that the authoritative public teaching of the body of truth, the scriptures about Jesus, that falls to qualified elders, overseers, synonymous terms. Now, if you haven't read through this, the rest of the Bible, that might feel a bit arbitrary, but why? But throughout the Bible, the role of protecting God's household is consistently from Genesis 2 onwards given to suitably qualified men. There, theirs is the responsibility for protecting biblical truth. But Paul gives some reasons here in 1 Timothy 2. So why is this? First, verse 13. Why is this? Well, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Paul goes back to Genesis 2 when everything was very good. And we looked at this last week. While equal in value, Adam was given the responsibility to guard the garden, protect God's law. And so, if you didn't run with 1 Timothy 2, and you said, okay, it's fine for uh, qualified women to authoritatively teach, you're then contradicting the principle in creation that the guardians of God's household are to be male. He's saying, well, that's just not how God set up the world. The guardians of the household from Adam onwards were meant to be suitably qualified men. Now, verse 14, I take as a consequence of what happens when you reject that order. Verse 14, and in Genesis 3, Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. This is what happens when men, such as Adam, fail to do their job. When Adam fails to be the guardian of the truth and protect the household. Do you remember in Genesis 3, he just stands next to Eve And he does nothing. And so she takes the lead. Strip away the task of guarding God's truth from men, and they become lazy. That's what happens in Genesis 3. I think we still see that today. By contrast, verse 15 Women will be saved through childbearing. And this is the point as the preacher, you think, okay, okay, okay. Oh, verse 15. Um, Women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Saved throughout these letters always means spiritually saved. It's not physically. I think this is best understood. The, The Greek text has the definite article in front of childbearing. Women will be saved through the childbearing. I think it makes most sense to the child that was promised to Eve's descendants, the child that came from Mary, the child who was Jesus Christ. Women will be saved through him, because salvation throughout 1 Timothy is tightly tied to Jesus, no surprise. So women will be saved through him if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So it ends up much the same as verse 10, deeds appropriate for a profession of faith in God. Let me say one more thing, then we'll come and talk about some details. So fourth and lastly, 
the male elders are to be beyond reproach. The women are to let the elders teach with authority. Then last, the male elders are to be beyond reproach. Then we'll draw some conclusions. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. They make it clear it's not that any male can teach while any woman can't. Only suitably qualified men in their character are allowed to take up the role of being guardians. I think, probably, without chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, chapter 2 is unsettling. I have no doubt that chapter 2 and verses 11 and 12 have been used abusively in the past or in the present. I imagine that's the case. But only if you get men in that role functioning who don't have the character required of them of chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Because we won't work through it all, but the elders, overseers, synonymous terms, are to be, well, verse 2, above reproach. Or another way of summarizing it, end of chapter 4, worthy of full respect. Full respect, same word as um, full submission um, in that sense. So that is the benchmark for anyone who's going to be an elder teaching authoritatively. I mean, lots of um, things fall under being uh, being above reproach. You can see from verse 2, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, uh, not given to drunkenness, not violent, gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, manage the family well, see that his children obey him. I think not, you know, uh, in the sense of there's a way, you know, Every child misbehaves, but how do you handle that as an adult? Uh, Worthy of full respect. So you don't expect any elder to be perfect. They're not sinless. They're not Jesus. They'll make mistakes, but beyond reproach. Worthy of full respect. Even so, the outside world can say, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Now, that is a high bar. And it needs to be. Before we finish, just in passing, do note, uh, uh, chapter 3, verses 8 to 10, deacons, uh, a a role, an administrative role of some kind, depending how you take it in the New Testament. But they have all the same qualifications requested of them, apart from they don't have to be able to teach. Verse 11, in the same way the women, I take it, that must be female deacons, are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, temperate and trustworthy and everything. Why? He goes through the elders, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. And then verse 8, in the same way, let me talk about a different group, the deacons. Verse 11, in the same way, let me talk about another group, the female deacons. And in Romans verse 16, you have the example of uh, a deacon being lauded for her activity. So there must be at least, there was at least one deacon, Phoebe, who's a female. Okay, let me try and draw a few things together. If you've followed me thus far. There is a difference in any church between teaching, which we're all to do. So Colossians 3.16, for example, everyone must, we should teach and admonish one another. We all do that. And can we call it capital letters or capital T, teaching, uh, which is authoritative, which is from the front to the whole congregation, 
which defines the boundaries of the church um, doctrinally or biblically, which is responsible for maintaining the church biblically. There's a difference between those two. And you might see it in these sort of terms. So every church would have some kind of thing like this, but it seems to me. So you've got on one hand, teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, or something like Hebrews 3.13, encourage one another daily, or something like 1 Corinthians 11, you, there you've got every woman who prays and prophesies, whatever you take prophesying as, the, at the very minimal level, it is a word to the whole congregation of encouragement. We won't go there, but that's as a minimum is what it is. Um, Everyone should be doing those things, everyone. But at the other end, it gets more and more restrictive who's able to do what, biblically. I guess you, at the most restrictive end, you have 1 Timothy 2, and suitably qualified elders are to teach with authority. Now, in the middle, there's all sorts of things. Well, if we go on um, in the middle, so you've got things such as, well, Priscilla and her husband, teach Apollos in uh, Acts 18. You've got a zealous, very able convert, Apollos, but he's doctrinally a bit wibbly-wobbly. Um, and so Priscilla and her husband take him home and they, they train him up. So this is like a small group Bible study, something like that. Um, you've got older women teaching younger women. And I guess if, if, if nothing else in this whole conversation, please, please be generous and allow freedom in the middle. I don't think you're going to get a bunch of Christians who agree on where everything lands in this sort of schema, is that a grand term, this little picture I've drawn up. But there must be just some generosity in it. So for here as a church at CCM, we would encourage many Priscilla's, <laughs> please, be as qualified biblically as you can be. And of course, we'd encourage lots of women to be leading uh, uh, mixed Bible studies that happens uh, week in, week out, because it seems that there is the world of difference between a 30-minute monologue, um, 30 minutes if you're lucky, uh, monologue on a Sunday, uh, which is to the congregation and is authoritative, declaring this is what we believe. That is different from a discursive, everyone chip in, ask a question, offer an opinion, uh, 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 someone chairing a Bible study. There's a difference between those sort of things. So it would encourage women, of course, of course, many Priscilla's to be doing that. I got to tell you that the, 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 the three you had up here this evening, um, don't take them on theologically unless you're pretty sharp. Um, they are pretty hot, uh, theologically. Um, <laughs> I was doing okay, wasn't I, until then? I was doing okay. I'm really sorry. Um, but we encourage uh, women to be involved in all sorts of things. And of course, as you'll see by Sunday by Sunday, to lead music, to lead interviews, to do book reviews, to lead meetings, to lead Sunday services, I think all those things come within the blue, or whatever it was gone, um, come within the blue. But sermons and the responsibility of or guarding the authoritative teaching they will always be given by the elders or those in training to be because the task of guarding the household of God from Genesis 2 to Revelation 21 is given to suitably qualified men. Now, I hope this doesn't need to be said as a qualifier, but perhaps I want to say to the blokes here, 
do, don't mishear that. <laughs> and do expect to be ministered to and learn enormous volumes of priceless treasure for your Christian lives from your sisters. My Christian life has been enriched immeasurably by, well, by my wife, my female friends, by the staff team, Sharon, Liz, Millie, Carrie Sandham in the past, Ruth Reardon, have taught me and shaped me in ways I am always going to be grateful for. So do, I mean, I hope that's obvious, but do expect that. The reason we're doing this series is because I have been sharpened up on this issue by some of the women who are sat here tonight. Guys, I, I hope I don't even need to say it, but do expect to be ministered to in all sorts of ways by your sisters, older and younger. You'll observe that there are women in all sorts of leadership roles here at CCM, as was highlighted. Uh, Sharon Walsh's ops manager has enormous influence in her role to shape things practically. We have two church wardens, Mark Doringing and Carrie Dow. They are ultimately legally responsible for all that happens here. They are our church officers that go before the bishop. We perceive that as a deacon's role. They're not fundamentally guarding the truth of the teaching of the scriptures, but their role is legally crucial, and the church would collapse without people in those roles. But the guardians of God's house and the teaching of the gospel, God, and you might say, why? And one day you can ask him, but God has said, because I've established it from the creation of the world until Jesus comes again, that guardians of the household of God, ultimately that responsibility falls upon qualified men. Now, I'd want to repeat what I said last week on this. Wherever you land theologically, and I've never met uh, Andrew Bartlett face-to-face. -face. I know the church he goes to, you know, a friend of mine is the minister, and I think he's written the best case for a different take of 1 Timothy 2, if you will. Wherever you land, theologically, what really matters is, is how it's lived out, how it's embodied in a church family, how, dare I say, you feel. And I guess... For the women here tonight, this hits you first, not only, but it hits you first, perhaps. The issue is, how practically, how does it work? How do you feel? That is what matters enormously. And that will vary under different theological positions, actually. I think there could be a complementary church, which is pretty disgusting to be a part of. I think there could be an egalitarian church, which is very good to be a part of, how it feels. But theologically, this is what it should be. And we've got to live it out in a healthy fashion. So where there are qualified by their character elders, this should be a joy. Should be, shouldn't it? Because God has said, this is the best way to run church. This cuts with the grain of creation. This is how the world and the church is set up. It requires men to grow into elders who sacrifice themselves to protect the church. And that's what you need. You don't always get that. This week, I've spent quite a lot of time 
according to, uh, to offer advice on another church. It's outside of London, and, um, and there's a, the church is divided, and it's, it's ripping itself apart. And the issue is because the elders there are holding firm biblically and are disciplining a member of the church who's much loved and saying he can no longer teach. And I observed that the elders who took that stance, which it's costing them enormous amounts of time, it's costing them their health, as some have gone off from their professions, their day jobs, or with sick leave because of the stress, certainly costing them time with their family. It's not easy. That's why he would say, if you do this, well, we had it read, it, 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 or, or James 3 would say, you don't rush into being an elder or an overseer of a church. But this is what's required. While the Bible grounds the role of suitably qualified men as the guardians of the church in creation, it defines them by Jesus, defines them by sacrifice. So I don't know what I would have done if I was a police officer in Ovalde in Texas. I like to think I'd have gone in, but I don't know. I'd like to think so. I do know that Jesus, when he was facing his death, prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, is there another way? I don't want to do this. I don't want to go into this. But he did. And he sacrificed for you and for me. And that is the model. And, you know, be gentle with your elders because they need to be beyond reproach, not perfect. But that's what you want. And when you get suitably qualified men willing to sacrifice to guard the church family, it should be a joy. You've got to work it out in practice. But it should be, because God says that's how my church is defended, protected. Even as men and women work together in it, I want these suitably qualified men to be the guardians. Let me lead us in prayer. Hey, great God and Father, we, we ask that you'd help us understand the Scriptures rightly. And Father, if I have misspoken, if I have uh, delivered error this evening, please would that be obvious. But Father, where we're persuaded and convicted and even that we wrestle emotionally perhaps with some of these things, we can see there in black and white what the Scriptures say. Father, we do recognize that you are good. Your word is good. You instruct us for our good. And we must trust you more than we trust the culture around us. Father, help us. Help us even as we work this out as men and women in this church. Help us to be uh, generous, kind in how we talk of these things. 
But Father, help us to ride this out well so it is a joy to be living as men and women here under the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.